0: Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast on which we discuss big ideas about the future of work and life. This is the 15th and final episode of the 7th series and what a great series it's been. I've really enjoyed getting to know my guests and sharing their ideas with you and I'm going to be having a couple of weeks break before the 8th series starts. It's going to be a little different this time. I'm going to bring you bite-sized episodes focused on the insights I've gathered from the first two years of presenting this show. The kind of thing you might listen to while going on that much-deserved summer holiday. But back to today and it's one of those episodes that make doing this so worthwhile my guest is one of my favorite authors someone whose books and column i've read for over 15 years and whose ideas have changed the way i think about the world tim harford is a journalist author of multiple best-selling books tv host and the presenter of the chart-topping podcast cautionary tales you probably know him best as the undercover economist after the title of his first book and long-running ft column we had a wonderful chat about all sorts of subjects including curiosity the importance of failing and how to use it to plan future projects as well as the future of the workplace now just a heads up we had a few technical issues during recording which means the audio isn't the best and you might notice a couple of Minutes in, I ask a question about randomness, and there's a bit missing there where I mentioned a story that Tim writes about and has talked about in his podcast related to the jazz musician Keith Jarrett. So just keep an ear out for that, and suddenly it will make sense. Now, one last thing from me before we kick off: I've now launched my cohort-based course on Maven that I talked about in previous weeks. It's called "Accelerate Your Career by Designing a Work-Life Flywheel," and if you're up for interactive sessions with me expert guests like those on this show, and other students with the same ambitious career goals as you, sign up or get in touch with me for more info. Right, that's enough from me. Let's hear from Tim. Tim, thanks so much for joining me this morning. It's a pleasure to speak to you. I wanted to start with a two-part question, if you don't mind. So firstly, why have we got a volcano in Indonesia to thank for Mary Shelley's great novel Frankenstein and, and secondly what can we learn from the events that its eruption
1: set in motion you, you started with the big questions okay so <laughs> uh, in 1815 there was a catastrophic volcanic eruption you could hear it a thousand miles away and indeed from a thousand miles away people thought it was uh, galleons the, the wily French were attacking firing cannons so it was loud even a thousand uh, miles away, um, and this was uh, many, many times more violent an explosion than, for example, Vesuvius, the volcano that destroyed Pompeii. And it changed the climate of the world. I mean, it killed tens of thousands of people in the vicinity almost immediately, destroyed crops. Um, but over the course of the next eighteen months, it changed the climate of the planet for for several years. Uh, frosts in summer uh, crazy weather rain drought and uh, it it was a completely grim experience and and caused very widespread suffering and of course at the time nobody really knew why the weather was so messed up but one of the things that i explore in this episode of my podcast cautionary tales is the creative response to this volcanic eruption and, and in particular to the year without Summer, which is uh, eighteen sixteen, and probably the most famous—not the most important, but the most famous—creative response was Lord Byron and some friends of his, including Percy Shelley and uh, Mary Shelley, or um, Mary uh, Wollstonecraft Godwin, who was to become Mary Shelley. She was to marry Byron, uh, to marry um, Percy Shelley. Um, they were all gathered together on the shores of Lake Geneva, supposedly enjoying a wonderful. Summer holiday and escaping the you know the scandal of their because they were poets and they were doing all kinds of crazy poet things and people disapproved of them. Uh, They were supposed to be enjoying this wonderful summer in the shores of Lake Geneva, boating, fishing, going for strolls in the summer Alps, but the weather was was catastrophic. It was appalling, and you had these violent lightning storms. You had uh, rain. Uh, You had uh, widespread hardship as well. You had peasants roaming around Europe looking for food because their crops had failed. So you not only had this very oppressive uh, conditions, but you could see people really suffering as a result. And uh, one evening, Byron challenged his friends to write ghost stories. They all went off and started working on ghost stories. And uh, a, a number of those stories have survived including uh john polidori's the vampire which is the inspiration for bram stoker's dracula but by far the the best of these stories was frankenstein mary shelley's epic work of gothic science fiction and you can see the inspiration very clearly the the conversations they were having about galvanism the the is it possible using electricity to create life is that is that man's role of course Mary Shelley, who had uh, many miscarriages and several children, um, most of whom didn't survive. She knew what it was to create life, but these men were talking about, you know, roles man's role to create life. Looking at the starving peasants wandering around, excluding, excluded from society. Um, you can see the influences on, on Frankenstein. And, of course, the main credit for that has to go to Mary herself, but you've got to give some credit to Mount Tambora, this volcano, And the curious thing is, it's not, as I say, not the only creative response to this disruption. So uh, possibly of more significance was uh, Carl von Grace's invention of the bicycle. He wanted a wooden horse because horses ate too many oats and oats were very expensive because of all the crop failures. And he developed a, a prototypical uh, bicycle and really he I mean still today most people even in the poorest parts of the world most people can afford a bicycle but very few people can afford a horse so he nailed it and then there was Justus von Liebig who uh, invented infant formula milk he invented uh, uh, stock, vegetable stock and meat stock he um, uh, he really invented the whole science of nutrition and he also invented the science of of crop nutrition so the the idea of what sort of nutrients you would need to add to fertilizers and this was a response to to this mass starvation that he saw all around him as a young man so really terrible things happen and then there's a response and I, i would never say that oh it's worth it that all the suffering caused by mount tambora was worth it but i think it is worth noting the way that we humans respond and do incredible things when things get very difficult
0: and also that there are parallels and i think you draw the parallels in in the podcast one or two, <laughs> one or two. <laughs> yes and i think there's many stories in cautionary tales which discuss essentially the idea of randomness and responding to randomness and i think there's a Definitely thread
1: through your work. Well, the Keith Jarrett story is incredible in a nutshell. If people want to um, to see the story told, uh, there is an episode of Cautionary Tales about it. Um, there's also a TED Talk I give. Uh, I think it has the title, Why Frustration Makes Us More Creative. But in, in a nutshell, Jarrett is this amazing musician, jazz musician, um, brilliant pianist, incredibly creative man at his peak in the 1970s uh and doing this series of concerts where he would just sit down at the piano and just play whatever came into his head completely improvised completely solo uh and they'd just be masterpieces and one day he shows up at cologne the cologne uh, opera house to do a late night concert. And it's a sellout. And the Cologne Opera House is a huge venue. So this is the largest concert that Jarrett has yet played. He's still a young man. Certainly the largest solo concert he's played. And the promoter of the concert is a teenage girl called Vera Brandes. who's the youngest concert promoter in Germany. And she just loves jazz. She's just trying to get jazz concerts going. And she sort of succeeds so rapidly that she's over her head. That, you know, this huge venue, this huge star, uh, and th- there's just some, there's some screw up somewhere and the wrong piano is delivered to the stage. And Vera later said, oh, it was like, it was a tiny piano. It was like half a piano.
0: Hmm.
1: So it was a rehearsal model. It didn't, it didn't have the size to resonate, to fill the hall. It was too quiet, but also the pedals were sticking. It was out of tune. Uh, a lot of it sounded quite harsh and tinny, especially the upper, upper registers. And so Jarrett just refused to play. And he only he only changed his mind when Vera begged him. And you can just imagine this scene of, of Jarrett looking at this, this teenage girl and thinking about 1,400 people showing up for this late concert. They're probably going to be a little bit drunk and there's going to be no music because Jarrett doesn't want to play that piano. And just thinking about what she's going to go through and taking pity on her. And he, and he says to her, never forget, only for you. And so he does this very brave thing, which is to walk out in front of this huge audience to sit down at this piano that he knows is no good. So I mean, it's described as unplayable. And to try to get something out of it. And the remarkable thing is that he doesn't just play some music and it's fine. He produces what many people regard as the finest concert of his career and it's all on tape because his producer records the concert wanting documentary evidence of what a mm-hmm. musical catastrophe sounds like. This is what happens to you if you don't give Keith the proper equipment. But, but it's brilliant, and it is and it is now. It's called the Cone Concert. You may have it. Many people have it. It's the most popular piano album ever recorded. Um, and so I just got fascinated by trying to understand why this happens. Because it happens quite a lot, why do we have this response to disruptions? And is it are we just now talking about a series of you know, Frankenstein and the invention of modern nutritional science and the bicycle and oh, and this amazing jazz concert? Is this just a series of, of one-offs, um, or is there something systematic going on? So, so that I think has really fascinated me for some time. What's different, of course, about the story is I used to say oh, you know, we have life too comfortable. We don't seek out enough disruption. We should kind of, you know, we should seek out disruption to our routines and shake things up. But I don't give people this advice anymore because it turns out, even if we don't want disruption, uh, disruption is is always on its way. (laughs) Exactly. I'm really fascinated by where you get the inspiration for the
0: stories that you tell.
1: Yeah, I just keep my eyes and ears open. And... Uh, of course, once you're looking for particular examples to illustrate certain things, then you know it, it's the old thing. Of once you once you buy a you know, white Prius, then suddenly you see white Priuses everywhere. It's that uh, th- that effect. Um, once you've got one interesting story of of disruption, there there are others. So so for example, um, Django Reinhardt, the great jazz guitarist. So Keith Jarrett is not even the only example of a jazz musician who's had who has overcome this kind of disruption to his playing. Django Reinhardt, in his case, much more serious. He was in a, a terrible fire when he was, I think, eighteen years old, and lost the use of two fingers on one hand, and and thus developed this very distinctive style of playing. That presumably anybody you, you could have five fingers on your uh, on your hand and and uh, and still play that way, but it had never occurred to anybody to try. And so, you know, Django had had this injury, lifelong injury, and and is you know one of the most wonderful and and uh, recognizable guitarists out there. Um, so, yeah, you just you you just keep reading, you keep listening. I, I listen. I am a voracious uh, podcast listener. I read a lot. Uh, And yes, once you have your eyes open for a particular kind of thing, fresh examples come along. Also in the academic literature, I read a lot of academic papers and um, very often there will be stories that are very poorly fleshed out or that the details are wrong. It's funny. Academics are very lazy and sl- and sloppy about things that journalists are careful about, and of course journalists are very lazy and sloppy about things that academics are careful about um, but it's funny just just because an academic says something happened doesn't mean it happened. I've discovered the hard way o- over the uh, over the years, but yeah you know, that's great you you know you follow this oh that's interesting the story that this person's told what's behind it, what really happened. you do a press search, you look at the archives you you read around it and usually the more details you have the more more interesting stuff there is behind the story
0: i mean if you had to pick one defining value that kind of guides your career what would it be because so I've, I've got something in mind but what would you say is the defining characteristic of the work you do
1: um well i'm a bit of a nerd uh, So I'm interested in ideas and I like talking about ideas and I like explaining ideas and I like trying to understand the world in that slightly academic way. Um, But I think that that's probably a style rather than a value. I suppose the value that I, that I espouse most of all is curiosity. I'm just um, very interested in what I don't know and in the gaps in my knowledge and always wanting to find out a little bit more uh, and, pursue all of these, all these, these different stories, all these different ideas down all these different um, byways and detours. And that's a wonderfully satisfying process to me. So it's probably curiosity, but I'm curious as to what value you had in mind as, as a a reader of my work and a listener to my podcast.
0: It was curiosity. So there you
1: go. Maybe I know myself. (laughs) I mean,
0: you do, specifically reference that actually at the end of your most recent book and, and it's interesting because curiosity I suppose can take different forms and different shapes and you know one aspect is cr- creativity or trying to make connections between you know, different ideas in new ways and for me there's a sense of curiosity about that but I think in the end of your last book you actually I think referencing it more in terms of not taking for granted necessarily what people share with you
1: yes i mean i think there are different parts to it so um one one way of thinking about curiosity is uh julia galef puts it very well in her book the scout mindset that um often when we're thinking about ideas and we're talking about ideas uh we have a soldier mindset which is it's defensive or offensive you know we are trying to defend a viewpoint against Mm -hmm. attack from a hostile viewpoint we're trying to win and the scout mindset is just Let's see what's out there. Let's try and map the terrain. And uh, that—that that is, I think, a really good uh, metaphor for the virtue of curiosity. Yeah. Um, you're not trying to win an argument. You're not trying to gain information that will um, give you some kind of advantage. Uh, instead, you're just trying to fill gaps in your knowledge and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and it seems like such a simple thing. I mean, it seems like, well, of course, whenever we gather information, we're trying to satisfy our curiosity and find out what's going on. But very often we're not. We're very particular about what kinds of information we pay attention to and what kinds of information we dismiss. um, And why we value information is very often because we can use it in some intellectual fight. That's one view of things. And, And it suggests, and there is some evidence for this that curiosity is um, somewhat vaccinates you against polarization because if you have this open minded view of like well, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on in the world, um that's just a different way of thinking than this you know red team blue team kind of thing that's going on. Another way of thinking about curiosity, which I like, which has just occurred to me fairly recently, is curiosity implies humility so psychologists who talk about curiosity talk about the information deficit view of curiosity which is that it's this kind of itch because you realize there's something you don't know Mm. and you want to figure it out you're not if you if you've got no idea what you don't know you're not curious Then if you know everything or you think you know everything you're not curious but if you know something and then you and you also know that there are these gaps that's when you get very curious So that's the reason I say it implies humility because in just packaged together with curiosity automatically is an acknowledgement. There's something I don't know and I want to know it. And that humility I think is very, is very powerful. Um, so, but humility itself feels a bit kind of, it's one of these slightly chewy virtues that we, (laughs) Oh yes, I like to be humble and it's very important to be humble. And we, you know, we say these things, it's not fun being humble, but it, it, it really is genuinely fun being curious it's delightful so yeah it's a virtue i uh, i keep coming back to again and again and, and and try to model it's it's harder than you might think but um i think that is something that um curiosity feeds on itself so you know pra- practice some curiosity and you get more because you just find out new things that you don't know
0: you mentioned there about it's only occurred to you relatively recently i think many of us have had to reframe our experience of work and life very differently over the past couple of years. I wonder if there's anything you've written about in your books or your columns over the years that you've fundamentally changed your mind on because of the events, not necessarily of the past couple of years, but I'm just interested whether your opinions have shifted because when you're putting your ideas out there so frequently, there must be stuff that you think, yeah, I'm not so sure about that anymore.
1: Yeah. there are lots of, I mean, there are lots of things. So, I mean, let me try and think of two or three. So one is just the style uh, in, in which I write my columns. So my early columns tended to be quite spiky. Uh, I was quite, quite like the idea of a hot take, something totally controversial or sort of uh, something unexpected that I could persuade you, actually, you know, I'm actually cleverer than you. Uh, I've thought this through in a way that you haven't, and I'm going to try and persuade you of my clever view. Um, and well, I think that was partly because I was, as a, as a young columnist with not much experience, I was influenced by certain other columnists I, I admired. It, you know, I, I liked being persuaded by them. I liked them telling me, you know, that, you know, I was wrong about something, but over time, uh, I've, yeah, I've mellowed. So I'm less interested in persuading other people that they've misunderstood something or my, my, that my spicy take is is the right take. Uh I'm trying more to tell people about something that they they might be pleased to know about that they that they don't know about or to encourage people to look at something in a slightly different way that might be informative or interesting. Uh so there's a much gentler style. Um which no, I mean it may or may not make for better columns, but that's that's how I've moved. The other major thing I would say is I've just got got much more interested in and therefore uh, respectful of behavioural science. So, classic economics training. I was trained as a, as a philosopher and, and an economist in the early nineteen nineties, and as an economist in the early nineteen nineties, you don't do. We don't really do psychology. It's just like, look, here's the here's the optimization model, and here's the you know here's how to think about how people make decisions, and um, of course, people don't always make decisions the way economists in the classic models say they do. But I wrote a whole book called The Logic of Life, basically arguing that people behave more like economist models than you might think, and it's a, I mean it's a fun book, and I think there's lots of fun ideas in it. But I'm not sure how much of that book I would still agree with, either stylistically or, or in terms of content. Interestingly, there are people who tell me that they, you know, that's, that's their favorite book. That's the one they really love. I've written nine or 10 books now. Um, but that's the, that's the book that makes me most think, really? Did I really think that? Did I really say that? See, yeah. but yeah, but of course you got to change. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe I'm just getting old, mellowing out refusing to take serious positions, just sitting on the fence. I mean, I'm sure that's what the kids would think.
0: <laughs> we all experience this as well. You have your ups and downs and your successes and your failures. I'm interested in why it's worth while us spending time considering the prospect of failure. Can that improve our decision-making? And do you ever go through that process yourself when thinking about how to plan a new project that you're working on or any aspect of your your work life?
1: yeah i think it's a really important question i mean, i've been fascinated by failure for a long time um i wrote a book 10 years or so ago called adapt which basically argues that trial and error is a very important process so the uh, you know for individuals but also for for businesses for society a lot of problems we solve by trying something it doesn't quite work we learn and We try something a bit different. That still doesn't quite work. We learn, and in the end, somebody somewhere figures out how to solve this problem, and then everyone copies them. Uh, and I think that that stands up. But I think I wasn't curious enough about the process of, or what does it mean to try something and then fail? What does that actually feel like? I, and I wasn't curious enough about, oh, this. Oh, and then you learn from the failure. I mean, I was, I was, I was starting to get interested. And there was there's a case study of the Iraq war and who, who in the American occupation of Iraq is learning from things going wrong and who is not. Mm. But that's, it's, a, it's a really broad, deep topic that I got very interested in. Um, and I think there's still a lot more that I need to learn and a lot more I'd like to say. Um, but Cautionary Tales is a podcast that every two weeks has a story of something going wrong and then discusses what we can learn from it and uh, so obviously there's, you, you know, you see failures to learn or successes in lear- in learning every couple of weeks. Um, uh, as far as evaluating my own work goes, um, yeah, I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to learn. It's intriguing because different kinds of work give you feedback in different ways or from different people and different timescales. So with a book, by the time you really learn whether a book is resonating with people, whether a book has got a great little story that will help you in a, you know, in a media interview or whether it's got a hook that will get people interested or a good title or it will, all, by the time you learn all this stuff, it's too late. Uh-huh. You try and file it away and and learn from, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And it's incredibly difficult actually uh, because the, the feedback loops are so long and so slow and so floppy. Um, what I love about speaking, I do a lot of speaking is if you're on stage you're you're learning almost instantly this is people are paying attention yeah people people laughed at that joke, or it's a bit flat, maybe maybe you need to change slightly change direction um, of course, the frustrating thing about uh speaking over the internet zoom speeches, which I have done I think they're fine, but you get zero feedback you have no idea whether i mean are people Uh, actually just playing Pac-Man or something Pac-Man I'm sounding really old now whatever it is (laughs) they're playing Grand Theft Auto with your voice in the background and they're not really paying any attention at all are they checking their email um, or are they really paying attention you just have no way of knowing Um, so and then the newspaper columns and the the podcast and the radio that's more in the in the middle if you 've done something that people really liked or that people really didn't like um, you 'll find out within a few days and so that's enough time to maybe reflect and adjust but it's not just about your own attitude to examining what's going on and examining your failures, um, although that's important there's also something structural going on. It's just some stuff, it's just much, much easier to learn than others. And I mean, you can broaden that out and say, okay, well, um, uh, you know, Google can learn very, very fast if they tweak the search algorithm, whether that's giving people results they want, whether that's improving engagement. Uh, Whereas say you're in charge of the US's nuclear deterrence program, you got a whole load of hydrogen bombs. Uh, Is it working? How well are you doing? What mistakes are you making? I mean, where's the feedback loop? It's impossible. All you can do is just get together with some colleagues and talk about it and think about it. But you, you, know, you, will, you will not have many opportunities to learn. Yeah. And the mistakes are likely to be very uncomfortable mistakes. Uh, and there won't be many of them. And, and thank goodness, because when there is one, uh, they've all got the possibility to be catastrophic. So it's not just about your attitude, although your attitude matters. There's a structural thing going on too.
0: Yeah, on a similar theme, although I suppose more related to timing. um, So obviously timing matters for great ideas. And the example that springs to mind that I've heard you discuss recently is Clive Sinclair and the C5, which maybe you can explain. Because here's a great example where timing wasn't right. 30 years later, perhaps, this story would have resonated far better. But it's also a great example of somebody who didn't seemingly do any testing at all to see whether the product he was building was something that people actually wanted. So who was who yeah. was quite Sinclair?
1: I mean I, I, I love researching that story and just and also hearing what our um you know what, what the actors and what our our composer and our sound designer pascal did with it and just the sounds of the 80s coming through that podcast are just g- great fun but yeah the c5 um for people who are uh, not british enough or not old enough to know it looked it was sort of like uh riding around in a giant white stiletto with tiny little wheels powered by a battery and it it was this sort of, yeah, you, you you know, maybe a motorized go-kart or something. It was, um, and it was supposed to be the vehicle of the future. And it was a total flop. It was a total flop because people didn't feel safe. It was a total flop because it didn't work that well. Battery power in particular was, was tricky. Uh, And you just get, you have to get splashed with mud. And I mean, yeah, they did not think it through. Um, But what is really striking looking at the story is Clearly, there was an important vision there. Light, battery-powered, electric vehicles, electric bikes, electric scooters, and of course, heavier vehicles too, so electric cars, clearly are not, not just the future, they're the present right now. I mean, they're all around us. They've really taken off. And the man who has done most to promote electric transportation, Elon Musk, is the richest man on the planet. Uh, and what really struck me looking at this was clive sinclair the entrepreneur behind the c5 this terrible failure of an electric vehicle it's very similar to elon musk uh you know a bit of a playboy made a lot of money in in traditional tech it was it was uh, personal computers for clive it was uh payments technology for elon musk um and then went to pour this money into electric vehicles and one of them just you know, it flopped, lost most of his money, became a laughing stock. The other one, yeah, the richest guy on the planet. And I think a lot of it is is timing, as you say. Just uh, if you if you swap them, and if Elon Musk was, was an older man and just Clive Sinclair had been born later, you could easily imagine Elon Musk uh, becoming the laughing stock in the 1980s. I mean, a lot of people who laugh at Elon Musk today, but for slightly different reasons. Uh, And you can well imagine Clive Sinclair becoming the richest man on the planet. It's that um, they they really were very similar and trying to do very similar things. But at the time that Elon Musk was trying to do it, he was absolutely, his timing was perfect. And at the time Sir Clive was trying to do it, his timing was disastrous. Uh, And there you go. And uh, Clive Sinclair died not long ago, um, a few months ago. And I was quite struck, Elon Musk tweeted tweeted a picture of one of sir clive's computers i think the zx spectrum and tweeted to his 60 odd million followers i i loved that computer and there was this real bond between these men this 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 older man who passed away had inspired this generation of of computer geeks including elon musk there was a real connection there across the generations quite moving to reflect on Um, but yeah it's a very funny car the c5 very very funny thing
0: I might have to put a link to it in the show notes, actually, just so people can easily easily find it. It's a funny-looking thing. On Actually, Elon Musk, he has been in the news recently talking about returning to the office. So I'd be interested to get your thoughts on on workspaces because there's, well, there's a few things, actually. I, there was something I read that you wrote related to the workspace itself and how we work within the working environment. And I suppose this is definitely on people's minds as they think about if and how people should return to the office. So I'm intrigued to how you design your workspace, but more broadly, why is it important that we're each in control of the environment in which we work?
1: Yeah, I'm actually working on a cautionary Tales episode about this whole question and some of the stories of people trying to control each other's workspaces or not. Um, For me, the the most important thing that that we we miss because, because you can't see it, and we feel it is who is in control of the of the workspace you know are you the king of your own desk or not uh it's not a small thing to be able to just be in charge of simple things like you know the chair i sit in the screen i look at how it works um and i put my dog pictures on it or not <laughs> uh and we in our concern for all of the other things that that Seem to matter more, like ergonomics, or uh, collaborative opportunities, or, or, or you know, whatever. Or does does it look pretty? Is it a stylish office, or is it a, is it a bit of a dump? Um, those things you can see, but none of them are as important as workers having control, feeling that they have control. And there's this wonderful study that I'm uh, describing this um, forthcoming episode of Cautionary Tales. By uh, Craig Haslam, uh, sorry Craig Knight and Alex Haslam, two uh, two psychologists, where they just get people to work in different offices, and um, th- the psychologists have control over the office space, so they they try these different uh, manipulations of the office space. So there's a very minimalist office, just you know pencil, paper, just a bare desk, a b- chair. It's all you know, it's fine. It's the kind of thing Steve Jobs would have approved of. People didn't really love that. There's a more decorated space where there's some pot plants, there's some pictures on the walls, and people seem to prefer that more. But that, what really was striking was when Haslam and Knight said, here's your office, you know, what do you want to do with it before you start work? If you want to move those pictures, move them around, move the pot plants. So if, if you want us to take them away, which, which would make it much more minimalist again, or whatever you want, just, just do it. And people loved that. They really thrived in that space. In another uh, part of the experiment, Knight and Haslam did the same thing. They said, yeah, you know, move the pot plants, move the pictures, do what you like. And then before the individual started work, they would say, uh, oh, um, actually, this isn't appropriate for the experiment. And they just get things, they rearrange things exactly how they were. And people just hated that they felt physically sick. And... And that's all about the control. Because actually, if people were invited to go into the office and just told, well, you do some work in this office, it's fine. Being told that they could control it and then having that control taken away, well, that was the real uh, disaster. But it shows that autonomy is incredibly important. Now, and I've been beating this drum for a while. There's a, there's a discussion of this in, in my book, Messy. But in the light of coming back from the pandemic, I don't see enough discussion of this. I see a lot of talk about the things that matter, like commutes and safety and uh, the importance of collaboration and, you know, do people work uh, on their own motivation or do they only work when the manager's looking or all of these different sort of issues, they all, they all matter. I don't see much discussion of the fact that people got used to really being in charge of their own time. I want to put the laundry on want to take an hour and do some online yoga. I can do that as long as I get my work done. Uh, I can control what's on my desk, control my equipment. If, I'm, if my chair's not comfortable, I can get a different chair. All of this, people got used to that. And it's not a small thing to give it up. And there's not to say it's more pleasant to work at home. I mean, I have worked at home for ten years. I love working at home. I've got it all set up just the way I like it. I, I'm very lucky. I've got the resources to have a, a nice home study. But even the people who found it really hard, who didn't, you know, didn't have that space, who were kind of perched on a, you know, a laptop on their lap and sitting on a bed, and there's a dog barking or there's a child crying or whatever, even then, there was this sense of of being more in charge than at the office. And I think if managers acknowledged that sense of control more and did more to say, yeah, you will get to customize your own space, you have some control over that, I think that that would really help in the, as we navigate this uh, return to the office.
0: Yeah, it's spot on because, of course, as leaders and businesses have to rethink the way they manage their office space and if it's a big company they're going to have multiple offices obviously they're trying to make what you call efficiencies In in some cases if you're not traveling in every day then hot desking seems to be, be the preferred option i don't think i've worked in any company at any point with people who loved hot desking and this is the conflict we've got between you know the reality of people having the option to work from home most of the time but also then wanting the, the best of both worlds. So when they come into the office, having their own space. So I don't think we've reconciled that and it'll probably take a while before before we can do so.
1: No, I think you're right. And it is difficult because, I mean, I, I'd i kind of like a desk at the Financial Times and I could probably demand a desk at the Financial Times. But if I'm in physically in the FT offices once every six weeks, I I mean... Why, why would I really insist on that? So of course, hot desking is, is, is more appropriate for mm-hmm. someone working in that way. And of course it's fine for me because I, yeah, I still got the control, like, oh, I don't even have to go in. I can just file by email. No one, no one's going to tell me where to be or what to do. I mean, I'm in that privileged position because of you know, where the stage I am uh, at in my career that I'm lucky enough to, to be at. Um, but I think we can still, you know, we can do better. So, um, there's a story that I tell in uh, in this upcoming Cautionary Tales about one of the pioneers of the open office, uh, Shiat Day advertising agency, um, where they just pioneered this and we are going to do away with paper I mean, everyone's going to have their own laptop and their own phone. And this is in the early 1990s, so the equipment is not really up to it. Um, but they just got all the details wrong, so there was no quiet space and uh, Jay Shire, the boss, would go around and would and so people sitting in the same place two days running, he's like, oh, you're nesting, you're not allowed to do that, you are got to move. So really sort of physically shaking people up, not, not sort of recognising there might be a, a reason why someone might just sit in the same place two days running. For example, the, their colleagues know where to find them. I mean, that's just one simple reason. Um, so, you know, it's, there's one thing to have the hot desks. It's another thing to just have to give no concession to people's need for some quiet, uh, some control, some predictability. I mean, they didn't have enough computers as well, which is the problem. You would show up at 8.30 in the morning and find all the computers had gone. And by the way, it's a paperless office, so you can't can't even work on paper. So, you know, there there are good and bad ways to do this, but I would... I would personally as a, if I was a manager which I'm not I would start by asking the staff wh- what they want and trying to indulge those desires as much as is practical because it, allowing people to control their space really is important
0: yeah well, look, I really appreciate your time this morning. I've got to just quickly, last question, go back to something you've said right at the beginning. So you said you're a big podcast listener. I'm interested if you had to pick out a few, maybe three podcasts um, or recommend three podcasts, what would
1: they be? Um, so, uh, I mean, there's some, there's some obvious ones. Planet Money is a wonderful podcast uh, about economics um, and uh, 99% Invisible, uh, just brilliant, delightful podcast about design. But let me try to... to pick something slightly um slightly more obscure um there is a uh, there's a podcast from the university of cambridge called risky talk uh presented by uh professor sir david Spiegelhalter, and they're just just a bunch of academics talking about risk and how we think about risk and how we pr- present risk that i think is uh, worth people's time and attention um comes out occasionally it's not it's you know it's not going to drown your feed um, yeah The second podcast I love is a podcast of unnecessary detail, uh, by three science communicators, stroke comedians, Helen Arnie, Steve Mould and Matt Parker, uh, sometimes called the festival of the spoken nerd. So a podcast of unnecessary detail, it's just delightful. That really does, um, uh, scratch the, your curiosity and, um, so uh one more uh one more po- one more suitably obscure podcast. Oh it's not very obscure but I think it deserves to be better le- known is uh You Are Not So Smart presented by David McCraney which is a podcast about really about behavioral science and the, the, all the ways that we fool ourselves. Um but the lovely thing about podcasts is you can dip in you can dip out you can subscribe unsubscribe they almost all of them are free and uh it's just a different way I, I find it very conducive different way to assimilate information to to go alongside the um you know the, the you know reading a newspaper reading books Oh, one one other thing about podcasts is even quite brief podcasts give tend to give you a lot more context than you will get from social media um mm. all these hot takes super short blog posts tweets facebook posts um We just seem to live in a world where information is ripped out of its original context. And it's really hard to to make any sense of it. Podcasts almost always give you that context and give you that time. And that's incredibly important. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, um, I've enjoyed this podcast and I enjoy listening to yours. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Tim, thanks again for your time this morning. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Holly. And that was my conversation with Tim Harford. As I said at the top, apologies for any audio issues, but I don't think it really mattered. Love listening to Tim. Love listening to the way he tells stories. And if you've not heard it yet, check out Cautionary Tales and obviously look up his books too. So that's it for this series, Series 7 of Future Work Life. I'll be back in a few weeks with Series 8. So until then, thanks again for listening and I'll see you here again soon.